The History of Literature podcast is a member of the Podglomerate Network and Lit Hub Radio. Hello, I'm Jack Wilson. Let's start today with an interview with author Philip Roth. Primo continued my education. He and I became friends for a brief time uh, after I had a conversation with him in Turin um, on the publication of one of his books, and that conversation appears in my book, Shop Talk. Um, and uh, the education didn't come from Primo directly, it came from reading his books. And uh, they're positively brilliant, I think. Uh, the first book, which was called in English here in America, Survival in Auschwitz, which was called in Italian, If This Be a Man. And the second book, I forget what it's called here in America, but it's called The Truce, Truce in Italian about his journey home to, 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 to Turin from uh, Auschwitz. Um, and uh, there is no chronicler more valuable than, than Primo. Um, and uh, it, it's, a, it's a masterpiece for 10 different reasons. Uh, just to have the moral poise uh, that he has in reconstructing his days there in Auschwitz. And then he exceeds that even in his book called The Drowned and the Saved, which is really um, uh, a um, reflection, meditation on Auschwitz, whereas the first book, Survival in Auschwitz, is a record of his, t- of his time there. A masterpiece for 10 different reasons. We're talking about one of the 20th century's greatest and most important writers, Primo Levi, today on The History of Literature. <laughs> Welcome to the podcast. I'm your host. Happy to be here. These are dark times. Genuinely not sure what's going to happen. We're in day 100 of a projected 1400-day regime. I just don't know how this turns out. So in times like these, we can turn to literature. Literature lights the path. Great authors, great writers, men like Primo Levi help us see things we might otherwise not. We'll talk about all of that today. By the way, Today is a show with some difficult concepts. It might not be the best one for young listeners. Please be warned. We're sponsored by Audible today. Get a free audiobook download and a 30-day free trial at audibletrial.com HOL. More than 180,000 titles to choose from for your iPhone, Android, Kindle, or MP3 player. If you're like me, you have a pillow speaker, which lets you drift off to sleep with great podcasts and great books floating toward you like a sonic magic carpet ride to golden slumberland. That's audibletrial.com slash H-O-L. Okay. Okay, this is a, a heavy topic today, but it's also an important one. It's important to note when this topic gets discussed that you don't dilute it. Analogies, even descriptions can seem to take away from it in some sense. On the other hand, we often avoid talking about the Holocaust because we don't want to open ourselves up to criticism for not doing it justice. Look, two kinds of people avoid talking about the Holocaust. The first are the people who want to deny or minimize its importance for whatever reason, their political reasons. The second are people who want to avoid saying the wrong thing and offending anyone. The first group of people have an agenda and they have black hearts Blackened, shriveled, angry, venomous, knotted hearts. I don't know what the right word is for them. Denying we went to the moon is kind of funny. Denying the earth is round is kind of sad. Denying the Holocaust is not amusing in any way. It's vicious and mean-spirited and spiteful and dangerous. The second group of people, though, The ones who avoid talking about the Holocaust out of fear aren't really bad people. They might be inclined to to say, oh yes, Stalin was as bad or worse if you look at the gulags and the number of people who died during his regime. And Mao had his own atrocities and even, even the U.S., slavery, genocide, the British Empire was no picnic. And there we go, trying to 
trying so hard to be fair, to find perspective, and yet somehow we have no perspective. Those people in the second category, I don't think they mean to undermine the Holocaust. But man, read five pages of Primo Levi, and you're right there. You're in it. You're in the abyss that humanity can descend into on either side. I mean, the, the victims who were shoved into the abyss and the perpetrators lowered themselves into it. And it's not so much that saying Bush is Hitler or Mao was worse than Hitler or Trump is Hitler. or It's not that it, that's a problem or it isn't a problem. It's that it's beside the point. It's just beside the point somehow. The Holocaust is the Holocaust. It's its own thing. You can compare things to it if you want. I'm not a... Well, I was going to say I'm not a Nazi about those things, but I guess I should rephrase that. Look, this isn't easy, folks. I come from a part of the world where you don't talk about difficult things. And then I come from an era, call it the Anita Hill era, because that's what my students used to call it when they were mocking me. High political correctness before that term got adopted and abused by critics. Back when it was real, a real thing. So you end up stumbling all over yourself when you try to talk about race or gender or concepts, difficult concepts like religion or the Holocaust, which means so much to so many people. It's the terror of offending. At its best, it makes you sensitive, but it can also make it hard to talk about anything. And where does that leave us as a species? Not in a good place. So, where was I? Primo Levi. When you read Primo Levi, you realize nothing is like the Holocaust, exactly, and nothing needs to be like this. It's okay that this is all by itself. That doesn't mean other tragedies can't occur or don't occur. They do. They do every day. They're bad. They don't lose their badness because the Holocaust happened. Evil is still evil. Maybe we need to draw more comparisons, not fewer. It keeps people talking about the Holocaust and the Nazis and the German people during that era. I don't know. I don't know the answer to that. I don't know how to do what's right. I don't know the right way to remember or how to speak or whether to compare or whether not to. I suspect there are multiple good answers depending on the context. But I know this. It's a miracle that Primo Levi survived, and his books are like that, almost miraculous. They read like no others. And the experience of reading them is mind-altering in the best sense. In the great books, the great literature sense, they're impossible to put down, and yet you must put them down. Because if you're open to them, if you're engaged with them, if you're feeling everything there is to feel and all your thoughts are awakened, they'll make you stretch in ways that you didn't think were possible. And it's exhausting. And yet it's everything literature is supposed to do. And yet, and yet, if you haven't read Primo Levi, you probably think... This means he's in your face, he grabs you, he shouts at you, he forces your face to look at pictures you don't want to see. My father's uncle was a World War II veteran in the OSS. That's the forerunner to the CIA. He was a language expert. His mother was Austrian and his German took him to places that others never saw. He was in the front lines, liberating the camps, the concentration camps. He never recovered fully. He came back to Wisconsin to a small town with a dear, sweet wife, one of the sweetest people who have ever lived. And he raged and snarled, and that makes him sound abusive. That's not right. Inwardly, he raged. He burned. Outwardly, he was gruff and curt and tough, tough, tough. As a kid, I was terrified of him. Even when he laughed, he was dark. And then when I grew older, he used to haul out his books of photographs from the war. Look at what they did, he'd say. And he'd open the page, point to a photo. It would just be corpses, limbs piled up, mothers, babies on a pile. It was horrendous. Look at this. Just look at what those bastards did. I hated them for it. I hate them today. This was... Forty or fifty years later, and the pain of it was raw. He needed a witness. Needed me. Age sixteen, age twenty. 
He had been a witness. He needed to know the remembering would continue, that the atrocities wouldn't be forgotten. He lived with that quietly in a town where hardly anyone else could share it with him. It ate him away from the inside. Primo Levi is a little different. There's still the importance, just the importance of never forgetting. That's there. He was a witness, even closer than my father's uncle. He was in the camps, one of a handful of survivors. But in his works, he isn't grabbing us by the collar. He isn't demanding. He's presenting. He's reserved. He's chronicling. He was a chemist by profession, a professional chemist, and he said he based his prose style on the scientific reports that circulated every week. That can't be the case entirely because his own writing has so much narrative liveliness. There's surprise and a kind of humor, an irony, a drive forward. And even more, his narrative has so much humanity. It's literature in the finest sense. As engaged with the human condition and as engaging as anything you'll find. He's written several works and short stories, collections of essays. I think there are a couple that stand above the others, two, maybe four. I'll talk about those today. And we'll talk about Primo Levi's life and the sadness and the triumph and the tragic mystery of it all. Hey, grown-ups! The Cat in the Hat cast is a new podcast from Wondery, perfect for the whole family. Join the Cat in the Hat and your favorite Dr. Seuss characters as they get whisked away on a new adventure every week. Fish dreams of creating his very own polite and quiet podcast. That is, until he gets a surprise visit to his fishbowl podcast studio from the Cat in the Hat himself. And it becomes very clear that the cat has other plans for the podcast, and those plans are the opposite of quiet. The cat may be disruptive, but it turns out he's also a great help to get fish out of all kinds of predicaments. Bursting with music, silliness, and rhymes, the Cat in the Hat cast encourages us all to find fun that is funny in every episode. Sing along to new favorite songs, try your luck at titanic tongue twisters, have some fun with wondrous wordplay, and most importantly, Bring your family along for all of the adventures in the Cat in the Hat cast. Follow the Cat in the Hat cast on the Wondery app or wherever you get your podcasts. You can listen to the Cat in the Hat cast ad-free right now by joining Wondery Plus in the Wondery app or Wondery Kids Plus in Apple Podcasts. to start in kind of a strange way with an anecdote about Wild Bill Hickok. I didn't choose this because Levy liked westerns, although he did. Westerns were very popular in Italy from the 1940s to the 1970s. After he wrote his novel, If Not Now, When, Levy himself said that he had wanted to write a western. Io volevo fare una storia di avventure, un western. I wanted to write an adventure story a Western. He later expanded, I wanted to write an action novel, a Western full of passion and movement and journeys and love affairs and conflicts. There's something basic about the plots of Westerns, something stripped down, something black hat and white hat that is very appealing. But for Levy, I'm sure it's the details that would matter. He's not a black hat, white hat author. He's also not one who bends over backwards to make sure everything seems gray who confuses being contrarian with genuine insight. So why Wild Bill Hickok? I just happened to encounter this anecdote while I was in the middle of reading Levy, and it helped me think about Levy's works and my understanding of them. My reading of Levy also coincided with Sean Spicer, current spokesperson for the White House, who made some astonishingly ignorant statements about Hitler and the Holocaust. Maybe we'll discuss that later, or maybe not. Can't decide if I want to interrupt our Primo Levi episode with the outrageousness of today's politics. You know we have a man who wears a medal of a Hungarian neo-Nazi group. 
working in the White House. You know how the speeches on the Holocaust and the Holocaust for the Holocaust Remembrance Day didn't mention Jews or the Jewish people. And the rationale given was that, well, others died as well during World War II. It's all in the news. You know this already. It's depressing. I fear what it means for all of us. I'm not sure it's my place to talk about that today. Instead, let's talk about Wild Bill Hickok. Sorry, Wild Bill Hickok, the famous outlaw in the Old West. He's credited with being the first man to fight a real duel, a real let's see who draws the quickest kind of duel. He killed a man, and he's a lawless outlaw, lawless and outlaw. How many ways can I say that? He's outside the law intentionally. He was a marshal for a while, but he gave it up. He lived on his reputation, his quick draw, and the fear that he inspired in others, his willingness to kill and kill and kill. That's how a celebrity outlaw could survive. Make sure nobody messes with you. And that's how you live with yourself. That's the part that got to me. I assumed that he had a whole philosophy in his mind. I'm just a bad dude. Or you can't show any mercy. You won't survive long out here. Softness or sentimentality equals weakness. And that'll get you killed. I assumed that would be his worldview. But guess what? One of the first men he killed, historians say it was probably the first, was a man named McCandless. There was some kind of land dispute and an argument, and Hickok shot him. And then, this is the part that surprised me, then he went and found McCandless's widow. He apologized for the killing, and he gave her all the money he had. Everything. All the money that he had. To give someone all the money you have, that's not someone expiating a sin or trying to impress someone else. There's no calculation there. That's human feeling, sorrow, regret, empathy, a need for forgiveness. That's what stood out to me. That's what stands out when you read Primo Levi. People are recognizable in Levi. They act in human ways. But that human emotion the genuine human emotion, the empathy for the widow, impulses like that, thoughts like that, that's been subtracted. That's subtracted out from the guards, from the people who are working, the mechanics of the Holocaust, the industrial side of the Holocaust, loading up the trains, unloading them, checking people in, sending people off to the next stop, making announcements, Their humanity is gone, and the humanity of the prisoners is gone too. It's demolished. That's Levy's word. He uses the demolition of a man. In Levy's works, we don't really see over-the-top monsters. There are humans or human-like figures doing their duty, their daily duty. This was his job, Levy would say. Simple sentence, and we marvel at the sentence, how strange it is, and how familiar. We've all had boring, routine jobs. We've all sat at desks. We know what that's like. To work a ledger. We've all had strange, or we've known people with routine jobs. Shoveling human ash onto a path is not one of them. Hannah Arendt talks about the banality of evil, and that's probably what this is, but I feel it differently when I read Levy. I've never thought about evil in this way before. Human evil as a subtraction, not an addition. That's what kept running through my mind as I read his works. When we think of anyone larger than life, a superhero or a supervillain, we tend to think of something they have in abundance, some specialized Skill, if skill is the right word. In the comic books, it might be super strength or x-ray vision, something added, something most people don't have. In real life, that might be an obsession, a will to succeed. Steve Jobs had a perfectionist streak. Napoleon had an outsized ambition, a lust for power that others couldn't equal. They have more of something, more perfectionism, more ambition than mere mortals. 
The flip side to that is to view a normal, functioning human being as having what Aristotle might have called the golden mean. We're all ambitious. We're all perfectionists, to a point. But we also have social skills. We have empathy. We have humility. There are opposing forces within normal human beings, average humans, that place a check on some of our extremes. When you erase some of those qualities from people, humility, for example, the ability to defer to what other people want now and then, compassion, a sense of responsibility toward, let's say, raising one's children, what you're left with, if you take all of those qualities away, is an egomaniac who may succeed, yes, they might become that famous film director or CEO or senator, but they might also trample on the people closest to them, might ignore them, might berate them behind closed doors, might exhibit sociopathic tendencies. They might cheat on the people closest to them. They might fail as human beings. Primo Levi shows us an extreme version of this when he's writing about the camps. He's writing about everyday people. These aren't superheroes or supervillains. These aren't mythical heroes like Achilles or historical monsters, unfathomable, like Hitler. These are average, everyday people, and they've been placed in a situation where essential human qualities like dignity and the dignity of others have been erased, just taken out on both sides. On the side of the oppressed, of the victims, we see the effects on people who have had basic dignities denied to them, like privacy, like going to the bathroom without being in full view of a bunch of strangers, the right to cover one's nude body. On the side of the oppressor, something similar has occurred. They've also lost the ability to view human beings with dignity, sense of pride, or any kind of moral compass that makes sense, it's gone. Everything gets twisted around. The bonds of basic humanity are broken into fragments. What's left is confusing. What would happen if this were an experiment, if this had been something hypothetical? If you had just imagined this, I think we'd imagine that the prisoners would be suffering saints and the prison workers would be savages. Instead, their interactions are full of what looks like human behavior. Some prison workers don't want to tell the truth because they can't bear it or because they simply don't want to cause further trouble, so they make up little stories about what's going on, little transparent lies, white lies almost. It's the behavior of white lies. The way my doctor told me when I was four that I needed a shot next year, and my sister, who was older, would need her next shot in two years. And I started crying because that seemed so unfair that I had to come in a year earlier than her to get another shot. And he said, all right, I'll put down two years for you too. And he pretended to change his, his description and his pad. That's a human stroke. He was trying to satisfy me, trying to help my mother, assuaging my fears. I kind of resented him for it at the time because I saw through it. I knew he was lying. But now I understand the impulse, trying to be generous, thinking that I won't remember, so it won't really matter. It's better to get through the day, to end the crying. Levy shows us that this type of little impulse still continues even in this framework of extreme evil. And suddenly, it's not admirable. There's nothing nothing we can say that's admirable about it. It's cruel and barbaric. A prison guard asks the prisoners to hand over their watches or any other valuables because you, hey, you won't be needing them anymore, so why not? And he's kind of sheepish, and it's clear to the prisoners that he's not acting out of his official duties, just pure greed. He's someone who spotted the loophole in the system. And they're outraged by this. At the same time, they're all essentially under a death sentence. They're all being marched to their deaths. In that warped way, the prison guard probably thinks he's being logical, realistic, certainly not the most amoral person around. Others are gassing people to their deaths, have ordered that to happen. 
If they can live with that on their conscience, then why should someone feel guilty about taking a few watches or gold pieces? Because the system has been so impossibly turned upside down, thwarted. There's no room for any morality anymore. There's no scale on which anything makes sense in the camps. And yet the the petty little guard still exists. And so does the outrage at the petty little guard. That's what Levy does so well. That's what's so valuable about his contribution, his witness-bearing. He shows what human behavior looks like in a skewed moral universe. And it's awful and agonizing to see. You read about a world leader like Hitler, and it's like reading about some remote figure. It's unlikely you'd ever be in that room with a person like that as he makes decisions. But seeing these guards and these prisoners, and you're right there, that's where you'd be. You'd be a bureaucratic guard trying to get through the day, or you'd be one of the victims trying to survive. And it's startling and brutal and even exhausting to read, but not because the behavior is so surprising, but because it's so familiar, even in this skewed moral universe. It's like finding out that your own closest relatives are killers and psychopaths having to deal with what that means. Levy was born in Turin in 1919 into a liberal Jewish family. He believed his ancestors traced back to Spain by way of Provence, arriving in Italy probably around 1500. His parents had an arranged marriage and were not exactly happy, although this has been disputed. There's a biography of Levy that's been criticized for making some unwarranted leaps, so I'm going to try to avoid following those and stick to the basics. With one major exception, the circumstances of Levy's death, our best views of Levy's life and experiences come from his own works. Anyway, Levy's parents were both educated and loved books. Levy himself fell in love with chemistry. He's written beautifully about the experience of falling in love with chemistry, and he trained to become a chemist. And then, Fascism rolled in. His diploma described him as a Jew. The writing was literally on the wall. He had a hard time finding work because of his status as a Jew. He eventually did for a kind of shadowy project. And then he moved to the hills to try to lay low. He was captured. And he confessed that he was there because he was Jewish. Out of his fear that saying that he was anti-fascist would lead to being lead to his being shot as a political dissident. Instead, he later regretted this, said it had been a mistake, wrong decision, because instead he was sent on a train to Auschwitz. Going to let the New Yorker pick it up from here. A couple paragraphs that describe uh, drawing from Levy's works and the biography of Levy describe what happened next. In his transport, there were 650 Jews. 23 survived. That Levy, a timid, scrawny man, 5 feet 5, 108 pounds, was one of them. Seems a miracle. He attributed it to luck. First, he didn't get to Auschwitz until 1944, so he spent only a year there. Second, he was soon transferred to a block where he found a friend of his, Alberto Dalla Volta. The two men became inseparable, and they made a pact to share everything they had. This agreement to aid another man, an action rare in the camps, as Levy later pointed out, was probably even more important to his mental health than to his physical well-being. Third, and most crucial, after four months in the camp, Levy met a Piedmontese bricklayer named Lorenzo Perone, who was not a prisoner but one of Auschwitz's many civilian workers. Every day, at serious risk to his life, Lorenzo smuggled a mess tin containing two quarts of soup to Levy, which he then shared with Alberto. Without this extra ration, Levy said, he would have died. Fourth, it was eventually discovered that Levy was a chemist, and he was sent to work in one of the camp laboratories, out of reach of the brutal winter. Finally, Levy did not become seriously ill until the, until the very end of his year in the camp. 
in January 1945 as the Russian army was crossing Poland and the SS was preparing to evacuate Auschwitz, he came down with scarlet fever and was sent to the camp infirmary. He should have died there. The Nazi command gave orders that anyone not strong enough to join the march to Germany should be killed. But the last days of Auschwitz were very chaotic, and in the end the SS, with some 60,000 prisoners, abandoned the camp without bothering to shoot the bedridden. On the night before the evacuation, Alberto came and stood under the infirmary window, and he and Levy said goodbye to each other. Both must surely have believed that Alberto would live and Levy would die. Instead, Alberto, together with most of the other Auschwitz evacuees, died on the march, and Levy lived. End quote. There are two other paragraphs that I want to cite here from the New Yorker article. This helps us understand Levy and its, his works and its critical reception of his works. The impact that it had on a shocked and recovering world, especially his first book, Survival in Auschwitz. Quote, It is hard to find the words to praise Survival in Auschwitz, and this is not because of the enormity that it records, but because of its internal qualities the intelligence, the fine-mindedness, the sheer narrative skill with which Levy addresses that enormity. He later said that he modeled the book on the weekly report issued in chemical factories. Accordingly, he sticks to the facts, and they are fascinating. He tells us, for example, about the toilet problems in Auschwitz. At night in the block, you had to learn to time your trip to the bucket so that you would not be the one to fill it to the rim. If you did, you had to carry it spilling on your feet through the snow and empty it in the camp latrine. Many prisoners became expert in judging during their half-sleep the sound their fellow's urine made as it hit the bucket. Half-full, near-full, each made a different splash. Levy writes with pity and without rage too, but those emotions almost never come unmixed with the memory of other, less respectable feelings, the fear of smelling bad in front of women the pain of seeing old men naked, the overriding wish to live, though others might die. Levy records how one day the camp was swept with excitement at the news that there has to be a distribution of new shirts because a convoy of Hungarians had arrived three days ago. In other words, the shirts would be from gassed Hungarians. He tells how, after one of the infamous selections, where the prisoners were forced to run naked in front of an SS officer, who then sorted their name cards to the right or to the left, that is, to be exterminated immediately or not, the men couldn't figure out which was the death sentence, the right pile or the left, so they crowded around the oldest, weakest man in the block, asking him which side his card went to. End quote. How could one possibly recover? Grief and survival and trauma, there are many ways to cope or attempt to cope, but even cope, seems like an insufficient word. How does one rebuild, or even survive, even just exist? Couldn't blame him for anything after that, not for leaving his home, assuming a new identity, trying to lay low, trying to forget, not wanting others to view him through that particular lens of being a survivor of Auschwitz. Instead, Levy recognized a responsibility, a sense of, he had a sense of duty as a survivor, the role that he could play, he appeared many times. He wrote what he could. He wrote essays addressed directly to the Germans. When Alexander Solzhenitsyn came out with his famous book about his life in the Gulag, Levy rejected the comparison. This may be bad, but it's not the same. It's not the systematic, mechanized genocide of a people based on a racial, religious background. Work camps, wayward and cold-blooded policies that end up in starvation. We can condemn those, and we should condemn those, just as today we should condemn torture chambers and killing fields and civil wars fought with machetes and other forms of atrocity. But those aren't the same as a populace supporting and carrying out, executing the Holocaust, gas chambers on an industrialized scale. This isn't to start an argument or to jump onto the moral, moral scale and say, well, this is worse than that, or this is bigger than that, or this evil is worse than that evil. Or here's an equivalent one, or don't forget about this too. 
Or why do you talk about X so much when Y involve more people? There are many atrocities. They take different forms. They're caused by different things. And they have different effects. They and the people who are victimized deserve to have their individual features remembered and noted. Humanity needs to discern the differences if we are to understand and fully absorb what these atrocities meant, what they mean. So, there are four books of Levy's that we should discuss. He wrote some others, too, and you're welcome to keep going with Levy. He's a beautiful writer. His prose is wonderful, and his mind, the quality of his mind, always shines through. But here are the four I'd recommend you start with. The first is, If This is a Man, also called Survival in Auschwitz. He wrote this in 1947, a very short time after he was liberated by Soviet soldiers. The scene where the soldiers see him is stark and agonizing. He sees the look on their faces as they see him and the surviving prisoners. It's a very powerful moment, what he recognizes there, that they are witnessing him as kind of the object, the evidence of unspeakable human horror. His body alone is enough to show these men of the evil that has been perpetrated by the Nazis. In some ways, that was his legacy, his body, his appearance, his speeches he gave, his presence at ceremonies or lectures or moments of remembrance. This was all started then, in a sense, that first moment when the soldiers laid eyes on him. But there there was more that Levy had to give. He was gifted and could affect us in other ways as well. His mind survived. His perceptions, his conscience, his memory. He could give us the stories of what happened and the context and the long legacy of enlightened human rational thought that helps us understand, or if not understand, help us analyze and wrestle with, absorb, reflect upon, see Help us see what happened and what it meant for us, for us humans. The second book of his called The Truce, or sometimes called uh, The Reawakening, came out in 1964. This was another memoir of his journey after Auschwitz to his home in Turin and what it means for a survivor to start to rebuild one's life and understanding of life and then a book called The Drowned and the Saved, which came out in 1986. This one was written later. It's more reflective, and much of it it is addressed to the German people. We heard Philip Roth talk about that. He thinks it's his best. Then there's a book, an incredible book, called The Periodic Table. This book, everyone, everyone should read it. Everyone should read Survival in Auschwitz II. Every human being should read that at some point, but everyone who loves literature should spend some time with the periodic table. Levy's experiences in the concentration camp are not at the forefront, though they, in a sense, they're underneath all of it. They run through it. They're the backdrop against which our readerly experience is set. Instead, it's his love for chemistry, for the elements, the building blocks of the world that are front and center. Each chapter is named after an element, and in some ways the chapter reflects that element. Levy grounds the story. Most are anecdotal, something about Levy's life, but they weave in descriptions of the element and how the nature of that element fits or comments upon the activities of the humans and their attempts to find meaning with one another. The Royal Institution of Great Britain named it the greatest science book ever written beating Charles Darwin's Voyage of the Beagle, among others. Here are a few of my favorites. In the story Argon, Levy describes his ancestors, his people, the Jewish Europeans, and those who wound up in northern Italy in particular, and he compares them with the element argon. Argon, an inert gas often called a hidden gas. These are the gases, Levy tells us, that are, quote, so inert, so satisfied with their condition that they do not interfere in any chemical reaction, do not combine with any other element, and for precisely this reason have gone undetected for centuries, end quote. They're also called noble gases and rare gases, even though argon constitutes 1% 
the air in the atmosphere. That's a considerable proportion. And so we have a description. Why do some gases combine with others and others do not? Why do some people? Is this a kind of purity? And what does purity mean in the scientific sense and in the pseudo-scientific racial purity sense? What does it mean in particular in the 20th century? These are just some of the themes that run through this chapter. In the hands of an amateur, this could be crude, poorly executed. In Levy's hands, a professional both as a scientist and a writer and a human being, if that's the right word, professional human being. In any way, in Levy's hands, it's illuminating. Here's a passage from another chapter called Hydrogen. Levy is talking about his friend, Enrico, a fellow traveler and a kind of nerd culture, both of them age 16, figuring out their love for chemistry and their wish to learn more about it, to use it as a means of, of part of the maturing process. Quote, We had no doubts we would be chemists, but our expectations and hopes were quite different. Enrico asked chemistry quite reasonably for the tools to earn his living and have a secure life. I asked for something entirely different. For me, chemistry represented an indefinite cloud of future potentialities which enveloped my life to come in black volutes torn by fiery flashes like those which had hidden Mount Sinai. Like Moses, from that cloud I expected my law, the principle of order in me, around me, and in the world. I was fed up with books, which I still continued to gulp down with indiscreet veracity, and searched for another key to the highest truths. There must be a key, and I was certain that, owing to some monstrous conspiracy, to my detriment in the worlds, I would not get it in school. In school they loaded me with tons of notions which I diligently digested, but which did not warm the blood in my veins. I would watch the buds swell in spring, the mica glint in the granite, my own hands, and I would say to myself, I will understand this too, I will understand everything, but not the way they want me to. I will find a shortcut, I will make a lockpick, I will push open the doors. End quote. The story ends with an anecdote about hydrogen, literally the element hydrogen, which the boys are preparing. It's hydrogen as a common element, a building block of water, the power behind the sun and the stars. It's a beautiful ending to a funny story, an anecdote like one that most of us might have, a childhood adventure gone slightly wrong and, and slightly triumphant, but with the fusion of hydrogen, scientific discussion of hydrogen, it gains a new kind of profundity. I could go through these one by one, these chapters. Zinc is another beautiful one. Zinc, the boring metal, in Levy's phrase, which gives us a, a glimpse of purity. Here's the quote. Levy is studying zinc, learning about zinc in school. Quote, the course notes contained a detail which at first reading had escaped me, namely, that the so tender and delicate zinc, so yielding to acid, which gulps it down in a single mouthful, behaves, however, in a very different fashion when it is very pure. Then it obstinately resists the attack. One could draw from this two conflicting philosophical conclusions, the praise of purity, which protects from evil like a coat of mail, the praise of impurity, which gives rise to changes, in other words, to life. I discarded the first, disgustingly moralistic, and I lingered to consider the second, which I found more congenial. In order for the wheel to turn, for life to be lived, impurities are needed, and the impurities of impurities in the soil, too, as is known if it is to be fertile. Dissension, diversity, the grain of salt and mustard are needed. Fascism does not want them, forbids them, and that's why you're not a fascist. It wants everybody to be the same, and you are not. But immaculate virtue does not exist either, or if it exists, it is detestable. End quote. That's the setup. And then 
this beautiful little section. I'm going to read a couple of pages of this. It could be James Joyce writing the Dubliners, if Joyce had been a scientist and living in Turin. Actually, Joyce did live in Turin. Let's leave that aside. Let's focus instead on this beautiful passage of a high school-age student coming to understand who he is, what his role in the world is in particular, and how being Jewish plays its part. All this is against the enormity of what will come in the future. We know that in retrospect. And Levy knows it as well at the time that he's writing, of course. He's recalling a time when he didn't know the eventual atrocity that would befall Europe, but when he was trying to find a connection with a girl that he was attracted to. And Zinc helped pave the way. It was quite clear on that day that I was being presented with an opportunity that should not be wasted. At that moment, between Rita and myself, there was a bridge, a small zinc bridge, fragile but negotiable. Come on now, take the first step. Buzzing around Rita, I became aware of a second fortunate circumstance, a familiar book jacket, yellowish with a red border, stuck out of the girl's bag. The image was a raven with a book in its beak. The title? You could read only I.C. and T.A.I.N., but that's all I needed. It was my sustenance during those months, the timeless story of Hans Kastorp in enchanted exile on the Magic Mountain. I asked Rita about it on tenterhooks to hear her opinion, as if I had written the book, and soon enough I had to realize that she was reading the novel in an entirely different way. As a novel, in fact. She was very interested in finding out exactly how far Hans would go with Madame Schauschat and mercilessly skipped the fascinating, for me, political, theological, and metaphysical discussions between the humanist Settembrini and the Jewish Jesuit Naphtha. Never mind, actually, it's ground for debate. It could even become an essential and fundamental discussion, because I too am Jewish, and she is not. I am the impurity that makes the zinc react. I am the grain of salt or mustard. Impurity, certainly, since just during those months, the publication of the magazine Defense of the Race had begun, and there was much talk about purity, and I had begun to be proud of being impure. In truth, until precisely those months, it had not meant much to me that I was a Jew. Within myself, and in my contacts with my Christian friends, I had always considered my origin as an almost negligible but curious fact a small, amusing anomaly, like having a crooked nose or freckles. A Jew is somebody who at Christmas does not have a tree, who should not eat salami but eats it all the same, who has learned a bit of Hebrew at 13 and then has forgotten it. According to the above-mentioned magazine, a Jew is stingy and cunning. But I was not particularly stingy or cunning, nor had my father been. So there was plenty to discuss with Rita, but the conversation I had in mind didn't strike a spark. I soon realized that Rita was different from me. She was not a grain of mustard. She was the daughter of a poor, sickly storekeeper. For her, the university was not at all the temple of knowledge. It was a thorny and difficult path which led to a degree, a job, and regular pay. She herself had worked since childhood. She had helped her father, had been a salesgirl in a village store, and had also ridden about Turin on a bicycle, making deliveries and picking up payments. All this did not put a distance between us. On the contrary, I found it admirable, like everything that was part of her. Her not very well cared for, rough-looking hands, her modest dress, her steady gaze, her concrete sadness, the reserve with which she accepted my remarks. So my zinc sulfate ended up badly by concentrating turned into nothing more than a bit of white powder, which in suffocating clouds exhaled all or almost all of its sulfuric acid. I left it to its fate and asked Rita to let me walk her home. It was dark, and her home was not close by. The goal that I had set myself was objectively modest, but it seemed to me incomparably audacious. I hesitated half of the way and felt on burning coals and intoxicated myself and her with disjointed, breathless talk. Finally, trembling with emotion, I slipped my arm under hers. Rita did not pull away, nor did she return the pressure, 
but I fell into step with her and felt exhilarated and victorious. It seemed to me that I had won a small but decisive battle against the darkness, the emptiness, and the hostile years that lay ahead. Simply marvelous. That's beautiful writing. Ah, that's from the story Zinc. Levy's lifelong passion for chemistry and his deep understanding of human nature and his particular cultural position, I'm speaking now of the Piedmont Jewish community, the larger European Jewish enlightened community, which formed him as a writer, those have all combined to create a true masterpiece of world literature. I don't think there's another book quite like the periodic table. Literature is lucky to have it, and so is humanity. I said that Levy's experiences as an Auschwitz survivor run through the book. You see glimpses of it as he talks about fascism and its goals for uniform thinking, for example. But also, it's just the reader knowing what happened. When I read Argon, for example, I was a little bit bored reading about the history of his ancestors as they relocated from one place to another, and then suddenly I realized that I was weeping. I had no particular ties to these people, but seeing the centuries slowly walk by and seeing the achievements and just the general course of their history and knowing, knowing that this strand of civilization would wind up as the victims of unimaginable atrocity like the Holocaust moved me to no end. I was five pages into the book. The Holocaust had not been mentioned, and I was weeping. Levy hadn't done a thing but present the history to me. He hadn't gotten out the violins and started manipulating me. No sentences like, just imagine that all this would be destroyed in the 20th century's greatest massacre. None of that was needed. Imagine what an author like Charles Dickens would have done with the Holocaust. He could have made us cry, too. I'm sure he could have. What would he have done? He probably would have shown us the shoes. I'm thinking of the shoes because it's a passage in uh, Primo Levi that stuck out to me. This description of shoes as the shoes were gathered up. All the shoes, all the prisoners were asked to remove their shoes, put them in a big pile. I'm sure Dickens would have drawn our attention to a pair of baby shoes. And we would have wept knowing the fate of that baby or all babies. Or there would have been a pair of shoes of a six-year-old girl, shiny. Primo Levi takes a different path, does things in a different way, takes a different approach. Primo Levi talks about the pile of shoes and the man who's sweeping them all up, and he notes this is his job. To sweep up all the shoes into a big pile. And he says, we prisoners watched and we thought, what is he doing? That's crazy. The man's crazy. They're all they're getting all mixed up. What good will the shoes be when they're not in their pairs? And that's the moment of humanity that we weep for. The moment, the clinging to the moment where a world was sane and rational, where shoes would have a function, and the the spark of the prisoners who have just lost their shoes, knowing that many of them are about to be sentenced to their death. And yet they still have this moment where they think, well, look at that, that's crazy. How is he going to be able to use those shoes? Why is he sweeping them like that? The man must be insane. All this makes me think of Tibet and Abu Ghraib and North Korea and Syria and all of, all of the pain, all of this. Humans are so wonderful. At times, babies fill me with so much hope and optimism. They're just beautiful creations, miracles. We're all miracles. And yet we are also so flawed, so terrible. Those of us who cause problems and those of us who don't do enough to solve them. Those of us who watch them happen and do nothing or do too little. We don't need to be lectured in order to appreciate this sad fact of life. Levy takes another approach. Primo Levy died in the same building he was born in and where he had lived most of his life, the apartment building in Turin. He fell from the stairway on the third floor and landed three stories below. That was in 1987, 
when he was 67 years old. He'd spent four decades since making it out of the camp. He'd become a famous writer, a much-in-demand chronicler of the Holocaust, a key figure, and he bore that responsibility with dignity and tireless efforts. People wept when they heard the news. It was reported as a suicide. It saddens me even now, thinking about it. And some, most, accepted it as a suicide. Eli Wiesel, his friend and another Holocaust survivor, the Nobel Prize winner, said that Levy died at Auschwitz 40 years later. But some didn't accept it, didn't want to, couldn't. Some were angered. Here was a man the Nazis didn't beat. Here was a spirit that they never broke. We've read his books. We've seen that humanity survived even after all they'd thrown at him. That was the view that many people had. Not him. Not him. We need him as our marker, as our survivor, the one who could handle the guilt, the one who could bear it. Others said in response to this that Levy had been depressed all his life. He had battled those demons. Then it was unfair to blame him or his memory for finally succumbing. He gave us all he had, and his personal life had gotten difficult. His mother had always been something of a hard case for him, and now she was entering senility, and he had to care for her in the apartment, and his life was harder and harder, the weight of it, and of course the survivor's guilt and the memories and the experiences, so we can't blame him, these people say, placing on him this kind of burden to say that his suicide means that we lost a symbol isn't fair to him as a person, isn't fair to his memory. And then another set of evidence arose. He had been taking medication and it had side effects. He had complained of dizziness a few days before the fall. And isn't it possible that he leaned over the railing and fell? He left no suicide note. He had been making plans, longer-term plans, in the days just before his death. And I'm inclined to believe that, too, in part. He felt such a responsibility to the people. It seems likely that he would have addressed his suicide in a note. He would have told people why it had come to the point that it had, why he needed to do it, and how we should all understand his actions, and what it meant for our understanding of the Holocaust. Or maybe that's wrong. Maybe he wouldn't have. Maybe he did send us the note. The message was that there was no note the absence of a note. There was no explanation, and there was ambiguity. The ambiguity of why a man dies, why anyone dies, and what causes it. What does it mean to have an accident? What does it mean to take one's own life? What does it mean for your life retroactively? I don't know what happened on that stairwell. He may have fallen. But if he did decide to jump, I can see why not leaving a note would be intentional. Not just lazy and not cowardly, but considered. It's the kind of ambiguity, the restraint, that forces us to apprehend what might be most difficult for us to sort through. Not writing would be consistent with everything that Primo Levi ever wrote. There we go. That's our episode on Primo Levi. We made it. Periodic Table, highly recommended. It's a beautiful book, as are the others. You can get them at Audible in audiobook form. And if you sign up for their 30-day free trial, you can get one for free. Compliments of Audible and this podcast. Audibletrial.com slash HOL. My thanks to everyone who's been participating in our postcard promotion. They've written reviews and told their friends and urged the podcast on new subscribers. And in return, I've been sending out special literary postcards to thank them. We still have a good stock. If you'd like one in the mail, just shoot me an email at jackwilsonauthor at gmail.com, J-A-C-K-E, wilsonauthor at gmail.com, and we'll send one out. Aren't you tired of getting bills and junk mail? Wouldn't you like to have a bit of literature sent your way instead? Of course you would. I'm Jack Wilson. Thank you for listening. 
and we'll see you next time.